Now, Revelation chapter 1. How many love the Word of God? Do you love the Word? Revelation chapter 1. Let's jump right in, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Verse four, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Verse 8, I am Alpha and the Omega, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters." Yet in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw them, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen and I have the keys of Hades and death. If you will then flip to the back of the book, chapter 21, and look with me at verse number six of Revelation 21. And he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha, I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Verse seven, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And then in chapter 22, in verse number 12, and behold, I am coming quickly. 22, 12, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of 
the first and the last. Holy Spirit, in these few moments that remain, speak to our hearts today and challenge us. Stir in us a confidence that you wrote our story and you hold it all together because you are the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Christ that was born in Bethlehem to save us from our sins is the same one who upholds the worlds by the word of his power and wields his sword and his word into our lives to change us and transform us. May your anointing rest upon my life, not because I've earned it or deserve it. That could never be true, but because I need it today. Help me to speak with clarity, with simplicity, and yet with boldness and authority and with the anointing of the Holy Spirit that our lives might be changed today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn and shake just a few hands real quickly, if you would, and welcome one another to Glad Tidings this morning. The Advent series this year carries the same theme as last year's series did. As we unpack uh, some of the names of Jesus. I said this last year and I'll just very quickly mention it again, but the naming of Jesus is a very important part of all of the gospel birth narratives. Partly because the naming of a Hebrew child was such a powerfully significant event. In Matthew 1, 21, the angel Gabriel told Joseph that he should name the baby that Mary was carrying Jesus because he is going to save his people from their sins. Just two verses after that, Matthew states that this all happened to fulfill the prophet Isaiah's words that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child and would have a son and they would be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That same message was repeated to Mary by the angel in Luke 1.31 and the angel said his name shall be called Jesus. And so in Luke 2.21, when eight days had been accomplished after the birth of Jesus, they went for the circumcision of Jesus, and he was given that name that the angel had proclaimed that Jesus would carry. There's many places throughout Scripture that the Bible talks about the importance of the name of Christ. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous can run into that name and find safety. The Apostle Peter said in Acts 4 and verse 12, as I said earlier, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And Paul in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess the name of Jesus Christ. How many are looking forward to that day? The name and indeed the names of Jesus later given to him are all significant. 
and they become the focus of this year's Advent series. J.B. Phillips in his classic, Your God is Too Small, said this, we tend to give God many names which aren't actually his names, like managing director, puppeteer, magician, resident, policeman, fun hater, I've heard people give him that name, pie in the sky, and others. And today we have added health and wealth bringer and other names, but those are not really the names for Jesus. Billy Sunday said there are 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I suppose this was because he was infinitely beyond all that any one name could express. So today we're going to look at the name that appears four times in John's Revelation, the name that they just sung about, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Pastor David Jeremiah says the Lord Jesus Christ is in a class all by himself. There are no competitors, no rivals. He's unique. He's Lord of all. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the preeminent one. So I want to talk about for just a few minutes this morning what do we learn from that name, the Alpha and Omega? There's three lessons. I'm going to give you the outline ahead of time. From the Alpha and Omega, first of all, we learn the deity of Christ. He is indeed God. And that's probably the most technical of what I want to talk about today. And I'll try to hurry through that as to not bore those of you who hate the technicalities. But I'm going to deal with those. And then we're going to talk about the centrality of Christ that we learn in that name. And finally, we will talk about the trustworthiness of Christ. First of all, the name Alpha and Omega affirms to us the deity of Christ. By the deity, in case that word is not a word that you're familiar with, the word deity simply means God, divinity. So the fact that his name is Alpha and Omega affirms to us that Jesus was not just a good guy, wasn't just a good teacher, he wasn't a created being, he wasn't one of many sons of God, he himself was God, the Son of God, he is indeed deity. Say amen if you believe that. Now the New King James, and this is where there's a little technicality, I'll hurry through this. The New King James and the English Standard Version, which is actually probably my favorite version, differ in their translation, as do others, though only slightly. If you have your Bible with you, you don't have to turn there, but if you read your Bible and you, I guess even if you read on an app, you'll probably have noticed little footnotes at the bottom and sometimes it'll be the capital letter N and the capital letter U, N-U. That stands for, the N stands for New Testament, the U stands for United Bible Societies, and most often the N-U translation uses what we call the Alexandrian text, the Alexandrian or the Egyptian manuscripts. These are the oldest ones. These are the ones that would be closest to the time of Jesus. And so they follow those texts because they feel like the older they are, the closer they were to the time of Jesus makes them more accurate. Now the downside to that is we have fewer of the Alexandrian texts. And so some translations you may see the letter M 
And that simply means the majority text. And those usually are more recent manuscripts, several hundred years down the road, and there are more of them. You've heard me talk about this before. When you line them up together, all of the manuscripts that we have, there is a dazzling 99.7% accuracy. So we're not talking about anything major, and that's compared to like Plato and Aristotle, who are like in the 50s and 60s percent, and no college university professor ever questions whether Plato really said that or not, right? Isn't that just crazy? But, but we're not talking about the accuracy of the text. We're talking about an occasional change or textual variant. The New King James uses, as I mentioned, the Alexandrian text, and the ESV uses the majority text. So in Revelation 1, 10, and 11, in the New King James, if you'll look down in the middle, we hear him say, I heard a loud voice saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see right. If you look at the same text in the English Standard Version, you see, I was in the Spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And in the English Standard Version, only in this verse, there is no mention of the Alpha and Omega, but this name Alpha and Omega does appear in both the ESV and the New King James in verse 8 and also appears in verse 17 as the first and the last. What is interesting is that in verse 8, which shows up in both translations and in all translations, as a matter of fact, verse 8 is referencing God the Father, the Almighty, the Lord Yahweh. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But when you get to verse 11 and verse 17, it is not referencing God, the Father, it is referencing the Lamb, the Son of God, who is also called Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. Speaking of verse 17, Gordon Fee, who just recently passed, great scholar, wrote these words. What immediately follows are words of identification, which at once both echo what God had said of himself in verse 8, and then identify the speaker in terms that can refer only to the risen Christ. Thus, Christ begins, I am the first and the last, language used by Yahweh to identify himself in Isaiah and used by John to identify God in verse 8 as the Alpha and Omega. When you read Isaiah 44 and verse 6, thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And in Isaiah 48 and verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called, I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Here's what I want you to see and look at me for just a moment. It is clear that the name Alpha and Omega identify not only God the Father, but they also identify Jesus and thus they identify him as deity, as the eternal son. So the one that we are celebrating, listen to me, this Advent season is no one or nothing less than Jesus, the very Son of God. Somebody say amen if you believe that. Why is that important? It's important because the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be God. 
In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, his name shall be called Wonderful. The choir sang it, Counselor, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It's important because Jesus in his life claimed heavenly and eternal existence. He said before Abraham was, I am. And when he prayed in John 17, he prayed to the Father, Father, restore to me the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. It's important because Jesus assumed and he exercised divine authority over sins and demons and disease and death. It's important because he claimed ownership over the kingdom of God, the elect of God, and ownership over angels. It's important because he claimed the right to receive worship and answer prayer because he called himself the Son of Man in Daniel 7 and the Son of God. It's important because he called himself the I am, which referred to Yahweh at the burning bush. It's important because he claimed unity with the Father. I and the Father are one. It's important because the New Testament as a whole makes this claim. Look at me for just a moment. If Jesus is not God, then this all falls apart. This celebration is a waste of time. We have no hope. If Jesus is not who he said he was and he said he was God, then he is a liar and the word is untrue. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. And Malcolm Mugridge said this, beautiful. As man alone, Jesus could not have saved us. Do you understand that? If Jesus was only a man, he couldn't have saved us. As God alone, he would not because he was perfectly holy. But as incarnate, God becoming flesh, he could and he did save us. How many are thankful Jesus saved us this morning? He is God. Alpha and Omega affirms the deity of Christ. Number two, the name Alpha and Omega announces the centrality of Christ. As John writes the book of Revelation that we will study the first of the year on Wednesdays, John is writing to first century Christians who are looking at the growing Roman Empire and they're wondering what their future holds. 
More and more their culture is being secularized. More and more their culture is becoming godless. Perversion is greater than it has ever been. The state has become the god of the Romans. And Christians are being marginalized more all the time. Doesn't that sound similar to what we are experiencing today? And so as these first readers pick up the scroll, the book of Revelation, they are wondering, where is God in all of this? We're losing our place. We're being ostracized. Persecution is on the horizon. We've given ourselves to faith and following him, but the world seems to be falling apart. Richard Bachman says, God precedes all things as their creator. And he will bring all things to their eschatological, end times, fulfillment. He is the origin and the goal of all history. He has the first word in creation, and he has the last word in the new creation. I want you to think with me for a few moments this morning, but throughout the book of Revelation, God is always seen on the throne. God is never antsy, he's never nervous. He never seems anxious or overwhelmed. He is seated on the throne. And in all of the book of Revelation, God really only speaks two times. The first speech of God is in chapter 1, and here is his speech. I am Alpha. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. There's only seven different words in the Greek. It looks like this, ego, eme, alpha, chi, omega, arche, chi, telos. Chi is used twice, but only seven different words. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. This is how Revelation opens. Listen, look, before anyone else weighs in, God gives this self-identification. Before anyone else gets to talk, God says, here is who I am. As they pick up the scroll, these people in the first century that are suffering, the very first word out of it is the speaking Alpha and Omega God. G.K. Beale says of this Alpha and Omega, it's a figure of speech that involves the stating of two polar opposites to highlight everything between the opposites. God is at the beginning and the ending of history. His presence or rule throughout it all was and is and is to come. God is ruling in between the beginning and the ending of history. How many are thankful God is in the midst of history? He is ruling through it all. The second speech of God in Revelation is at the end of the book, and it's much longer. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the first thing. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. There's three things. Then he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. That's the fourth thing. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. That's the fifth thing. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
That's the sixth thing. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's the seventh thing. The second speech is much longer than the first. The first had only seven words. But the second speech had seven statements. Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. And then comes this statement, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then to the thirsty, I will give him from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. And number seven, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, I read it, they will have their place in the lake of fire, which is the second death. Look at me for just a moment. The numerical pattern is no accident. Speech one has seven words. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Speech two has seven statements. But smack dab in the middle of the seven statements is this declaration, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You see, the basic context of the second speech is the new creation. I am the Alpha and the Omega is the centerpiece. First, there are three points that kind of speak of the divine side of new creation. And then the second three points speak of humanity's destiny in the face of this climactic event. But the focal Alpha and Omega statement centers on God's character as the sovereign Lord of history the originating cause from whom the whole new creation emerges. This is how Paul summarized it. He did it best. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. He is supreme over all creation, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities, and the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. Look at this. And he, Jesus, holds all things together. He's in the middle. He's Alpha, Omega, but he is in the middle holding it all together. We've got so much to say. I'm going to say it really fast. Everybody ready to listen really fast? In the opening chapters of his autobiographical classic, The Seven-Story Mountain, Thomas Merton, you may have heard that name, offers a unique look at the church's place in society. After Merton's mother died, his father, who was an artist, traveled the world, and he took Thomas Merton with him. Religion had more of a peripheral presence in young Thomas's life. But at one particular place that they stayed in France, it was the small town of St. Antonin. The church was front and center in the community. Literally, the striking presence of the old gray building in the center of town made an impression on Thomas Merton, even more than he realized. He wrote, here, everywhere I went, I was forced by the disposition of everything around me to always at least be virtually conscious of the church. 
Every street pointed more or less inward to the center of town, to the church. Every view of the town from the exterior hills centered upon the long gray building with its high spire. The whole landscape unified by the church and its heavenward spire seemed to say, this is the meaning of all created things. We've been made for no other purpose than that men may use us in raising themselves to God and in proclaiming the glory of God. He writes this, oh, what a thing it is to live in a place that is so constructed that you are forced in spite of yourself to at least become a virtual contemplative where all day long your eyes must turn again and again to the house that hides the sacramental Christ. In the midst of his reflection, Merton turns his attention to whomever may be reading his words in the seven-story mountain, most notably to unbelievers who, like him at the time of his visiting St. Antonin, doubted who Jesus was. He writes this, we'll put it on the screen, I did not even know who Christ was, that he was God. I thought churches were simply places where people got together and sang a few hymns. And yet now I tell you, you who are now what I once was, unbelievers, it is that sacrament and that alone, the Christ living in our midst, it is he alone who holds our world together and keeps us all from being poured headlong and immediately into the pit of eternal destruction. The name Alpha and Omega, look at me, it announces the centrality of Christ. He is the center of everything. Alpha, Omega, beginning and the end. And let me give you the last point very quickly. The Alpha and Omega also reveals the trustworthiness of Christ. Why don't you go ahead and stand? Can you do that? I can finish in five minutes if you'll stand and listen really well, all right? Just stand. Look at verse 12 and 13, chapter 22. I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. John's revelation, just watch me. John's revelation uh, opens and closes with the affirmation that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So the statement itself is the Alpha and the Omega. He begins and ends the book with that statement. In between, the opening and the ending of the book is the divine action of God, the judgment of God, all the things that will take place yet in the future. But here's the point. God is in charge in the beginning and in the end. And so therefore God is in charge in the middle as well. Say amen if you're thankful again. He's in charge in the middle. Alpha and Omega speak of the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Like saying, I am A to Z and everything in between. I would pass over this part, but this was the, uh, I think this was the 
20-year-old Kevin Holt that preached these four points. I took like 30 minutes. I'm going to take like 30 seconds. But, but this was, it was pretty simple, but it's pretty powerful. When you think about the alphabet, A to Z, you think about its adaptability. Think about the 26 letters of the alphabet. You can write a jury summons with it, with those 26 letters, or you can write a love letter with it. Same 26 letters. How adaptable. You can, you can sentence someone to life in prison with those 26 letters, or you can write a love letter to that person that has your heart with those same 26. How adaptable. How many are thankful that whatever need you have, Jesus can meet? Aren't you thankful for that? What about the invincibility of the alphabet? I mean, they can crush a lot of things, but we're always going to have those 26 letters, aren't we? We can always scratch out those letters and say to someone, hey, I've got a note for you. I've got something to say to you. Here's one that's not in the notes. You, won't, you don't have to push this. What about the inexhaustibility or excuse me, the indispensability of the alphabet. We cannot live without it. You can't, you can't pay a bill without the alphabet. You can't send a note. You can't send a letter. You can't write a check. You can't do anything without those 20. It's indispensable. How many believe Jesus is indispensable? And let me give you this one, the inexhaustibility. Let me tell you this, the Library of Congress, Congress is the largest library in the world. It has 173 million items cataloged and 839 miles of bookshelves, all written with 26 letters. And this Yahoo just wrote a book that we're selling out in the lobby. Can you imagine that? It's inexhaustible. You can't use up those 26 letters. How many are thankful that the goodness of God is inexhaustible? His mercy is new every single morning. So to a confused and hurting world, Jesus announced, I am Alpha and Omega. I am the Lord God who was, who is, who was, who is to come. I'm the Almighty. I was in charge. I will be in charge. I am in charge. I'm the first and last and everything in between. Folks, he can be depended upon. Do you believe that? He is trustworthy. I'm going to end with this little illustration. The human mind is wonderfully complex. It's a complex organ. Our brains can actually process a group of words, even if they're spelled totally incorrectly. Why don't you look at this? We're going to read this together. The human mind is a wonderfully complex organ. You see, it doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word appear. The only important thing is that the first and last letter are in the right place. The rest can be a total mess, and you can still read it without a problem. Are you all reading this with me? This is because the human mind does not read every letter by itself, but the word as a whole. Amazing, isn't it? I wanted to read that with you because your life may feel all messed up. You may feel like things are topsy-turvy and all twisted around. But if you have Jesus as your Alpha and your Omega, 
your life makes sense. Somebody say amen if you believe that. It makes sense. He can bring it all together because he holds it all together. Father, oftentimes our lives and the world around us don't seem to make sense. Times that our lives seem to be a total mess. But when we take a step back and remember you are the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, we can rest assured that one day it will all become perfectly clear. We can trust you. You're inexhaustible. Whatever our need is, you are adaptable. You are invincible. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about the name of Jesus. It will stand, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. Teach us to walk with the confidence that we have a trustworthy Savior who can make our messed up lives make sense. With your heads bowed for just a moment, I'm going to ask you two questions. Maybe you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. You may say, Pastor Kevin, my life today is a mess. It doesn't make sense. It's all topsy-turvy. I've made a mess of some things, but I need Jesus. I want Jesus to come and be the center of my life. I want him to be the Alpha and the Omega, and I want him to hold it all together. I want to give my life to him today. Is there anyone in this room who would say, Pastor Kevin, pray for me today? I want to give my life to Jesus today. I want to surrender my life to him. Anyone in this room, anyone in this place, with your head still bowed for just a moment, how many would say, I'm a believer, but right now there are some things that are a little out of whack. There are some things in my emotional life, in my spiritual life, in my family life, in my devotional life that are not where they need to be. But I want to affirm today that Jesus will be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, and He will be central in everything I do and in the way I live. How many would raise your hand with me and say that's the way where I am today? Jesus, be the center of my life. Can we sing this and make this our prayer?